You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. What is cultural appropriation? The phrase tends to bring up really strong feelings and opinions, and I believe it's an important topic for yoga teachers specifically to contemplate and to learn about. Hello, yoga teacher. Today, I'm excited to dive into this controversial topic that provides us the opportunity to practice non-reactivity, compassion, and discernment. As I was preparing for the conversation that I'm going to share with you today, I posted a question in the Yoga Teacher Resource Facebook group asking what questions members had about cultural appropriation. And there were many excellent questions posed, but what really hit me and surprised me was how many people wanted to share their opinions about cultural appropriation instead of asking questions. Some of these people appeared to have a very limited understanding of the topic, and I really got the impression that they felt like they understood everything they needed to know about cultural appropriation just by hearing the term. Listen, I am definitely not exempt from forming strong opinions about topics I know very little about. My dad calls this not burdened by any knowledge, and I think we tend to do it, all of us, especially when our sense of safety is threatened. So as yoga teachers, if we get the sense that someone might be telling us that we need to stop doing the activity around which we form a large part of our identity, i.e. practicing and teaching yoga, and probably are living as well, then it makes sense that some defensiveness would come up. However, when we're doing the work of yoga, we seek to move beyond the survival brain and into the space of wisdom and discernment. And from there, explore ways of being in the world that cause less harm. Today's podcast episode is an invitation to live this practice by listening to a thoughtful exploration of the term cultural appropriation from a person who understands it both personally and academically. My guest today is poet, writer, and researcher Rina Deshpande. Rina designs yoga-based interventions for scientific research at Harvard Medical School. She trains preschool administrators in mindfulness, writes children's books, and teaches yoga. She has written about cultural appropriation for Yoga Journal and Self Magazine, and also leads trainings on the topic. I'm excited for my listeners to get to hear her perspective on cultural appropriation. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Okay, thank you so much for taking the time at, to talk about this topic, which is really getting a lot of energy right now, but I'm just hearing so many questions about it. And I put this out to my group. I have a group of yoga teachers on Facebook, and I was really pretty shocked by the range of understanding that people have, like coming at it from such a very beginner place all the way to having really strong opinions. So I would love to start, if you don't mind, with your definition of cultural appropriation. Sure. Um, so I um, 
I guess I come at it from a personal perspective and then a, a researcher and writer perspective. My name is Rena, and I, I've been doing yoga my whole life by way of living. So from a personal um, interpretation, I would say that cultural appropriation is this feeling I get, <laughs> which is that this way of life that is part of being Indian or part of this practice, which historically really is indigenous, it's ancient, which has so much more to do with uh, mind, body, spirit alignment. It's this feeling that, you know what, this is suddenly turned into a craze or it's suddenly promoting more body image problems and anxiety or an elite type of feeling. So cultural appropriation from a personal standpoint is that. Um, when we think of it from a more you know, research or writing or presentation perspective, really what it is, is when we take some part of a practice without understanding the entire context and usually the painful history um, of imperialism and colonization. Um, and we take that certain portion and we market it in favor of a particular other group. So that's really what cultural appropriation is. <laughs> Can you share a little bit both personally and then if you have other stories that maybe aren't even personal to you about how this causes harm. I can say just again from a personal standpoint, you know, what happens is when something is meaningful or seen as sacred to a particular culture, it is, it's just painful. So if we imagine, for example, you're in your home, right? Anyone's just in their home and someone who is unknown or is an intruder comes into your home and starts to tell you that you don't get to do do what you want to do in your home, or they take what you typically do and they change it all around and sort of make you feel either like a prisoner or uninvited in your own home. It's a horrible feeling, creation of harm. And in that same way, when we think of something like yoga or mindfulness, these practices that originated in India, um, we think at least 1,500, if not multiple thousands of years ago. So even archaeologically, we're still figuring that all out. But it originated in the Indus Valley. And people who are practicing this practice were doing so in a way that was in connection with nature, with devotion, with one another, and with self as a higher realization. And um, what came about eventually was imperialism. So um, when people came in and started to um, basically ban these practices or see them as less than or see them as offensive somehow in their own homeland of India, um, and then later on taken to be marketed as a multi-billion dollar industry, um, in the West, it's challenging to observe that. And there's this creation of harm that when you see things like I can, you know, see a commercial on TV and it's literally advertising um, a bacon sandwich and it's using um, a meditation bell and the mantra Om, which are sacred um, and which honor, you know, in India historically cows are honored. So it's this, it's this really nauseating painful feeling that arises from that experience of watching it personally. So it sounds like there's some connection to the inherited trauma from colonialism. Definitely. Yeah. These practices being very much related to ancestry, right? So um, whether or not we think of that as something spiritual or not, you know, we can all agree that we have ancestry, we have our genetics, 
um, we carry things over time. So if there was something even biologically, your parent or whoever it was before you, grandparent, prior, prior, had, it might show up in you. And similarly, in that way, we think even psychologically or in yoga terms, energetically, right? We pass this on over time. I'm in this position right now, very privileged. So I, Rena, who's here today in 2020, get to talk about this, not just because I put it together, but because there are these conditions that have allowed it. There are people who have come before me. There are the practitioners who have started to pave the way. My, my yoga books from my grandmother and great-grandmother that I have that inspire me. So all of these things are connected. So absolutely, the ancestral pain that's there, I think um, in, the, in the Black Lives Matter and even bringing indigenous people back into the conversation who have been suffering in our country and not acknowledged, when we understand that this, this is all related, I think it, it does definitely heighten the importance of cultural appropriation and our awareness of it. I think there's so much lack of understanding and even defensiveness when people bring like the word cultural appropriation. This is what I'm learning when I just made this post in this Facebook group. And the first response from so many people is yoga is universal. My sense when I really listen to people talking about cultural appropriation is that there's a lot of overlap and shared, like a shared intention for wanting to spread what yoga is really with the profound parts of it, right? Sure. And I'm wondering, have you experienced some of this defensiveness when you talk about cultural appropriation? And how have you responded to it? Um, I think it's a great question. So one, I think first is that when I'm invited to talk about it, like you've invited me, um, I agree with you that conversation is really important. I feel very fortunate that resoundingly, the majority of people are open to learning and unveiling something that they just might not have been aware of. And I think that has so much to do with our education of it. So thankfully, um, the number of conversations I have with yoga teachers and with others alike, people who've read the article, people who reach out um, or in classes that I teach, people are very much interested in realizing. So it's an awakening of, I didn't even realize yoga was Indian, was one of the things I've heard before. So I think that part has been very good. I definitely get pushback from time to time. I've gotten emails from in response to some of my articles like on self or yoga journal. And I get somebody who's saying to me, like, I don't, I'm sick and tired of hearing this, you know? And what I understand is that, you know, innate human response is defensiveness. Like I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't mean to, I'm just doing something that's claimed to be universal. So I wouldn't disagree with the statement that, that it is universal, but I think what happens is right when you hear a word yoga in and of itself is Sanskrit, or as my parents say, Sanskrit is Sanskrit word. And, and as the British came in, we pronounce that word as Sanskrit or Sanskrit. And when you start to see the advertisements of yoga where there's so little representation of Indian people when it is the origin, right? Then it doesn't feel universal. Ironically, it's literally excluding those that have been part of its origin, that are part of its creation. And that is where I agree. I wanted to be universal. And the irony is that I'm asking for myself and my own people 
who are part of its roots to be represented in this practice rather than what we often see, right? Which is people in athletic wear, um, which again, we don't require ourselves to have particular outfits for yoga. In India, if you practice yoga historically, you wear what you're wearing, you know, right now as we're sitting here and talking, this in and of itself, Atta Yoga Anushasanam is, yoga is now. So, um, Thankfully, the conversations seem to go well, but I think we do require to educate ourselves. And many people don't realize that the eight limbs of yoga in and of themselves are not the origin of yoga. Prior to the eight limbs, yoga didn't even exist in that form. And so it was it was called bhakti, um, jnana, and karma yoga. Bhakti being devotional, karma being giving to others, and jnana is actually knowledge and study. And so these forms of yoga are very foundational. And so jnana yoga, that educating ourselves, like making sure we understand where this comes from is very much part of the picture and realizing for most of us, Indian, white, black, regardless of how we identify, regardless of our background, our race, our ethnic background, right? So if we're white, if we're black, if we're Latino, if whatever sexual orientation, if we're multiracial, we have a duty to educate ourselves as we're engaging in these practices, especially now being aware about the historic oppression of the people that we're trying to practice them in peace. And that way, universally, we can all engage mindfully in them. It sounds to me like there's a real connection to intersectionality here, where, of course, where your background is Indian and the yoga came from India, it's very important to have Indian representation. I'm hearing you also speaking to just having differently abled representation and larger bodies and however we can think of the spectrum of humanity, that that does get represented in how we represent yoga. Because otherwise, even if we don't intend to, it has this appearance of being just for able-bodied white people. Yes, I, I think you summarize that really well, which is what's been happening in marketing is hard for us to prevent. We see it in Hollywood and the Oscars. We see it happening and who gets cast in certain things. Um, and similarly, it's creating a community of exclusion, right? Um, and so what you're saying, and I am absolutely saying as well, which is we need to make sure it's accessible. Yoga is universal. That is true. Yoga is for all. So ability-wise, you know, everything, whatever you're coming in with, everyone should feel invited into a yoga room or into a yoga practice. So if it's not feeling that way and you're looking around and you're seeing something that feels exclusionary, and this is where it gets really, really challenging looking for the invisible, unless somebody starts to speak up, right? So until we started to have someone name cultural appropriation, it might not have occurred to us that the brown people on the cover of magazines for yoga are not showing up. It might not occur to us because we're not seeing it. And so part of yoga is realizing that there are people who are invisible in this practice, and that's exactly what yoga is. So looking to the invisible, realizing that there are people who are excluded, who are not given a voice or a face, and to invite them in is part of this practice. But the irony again, right, is that it is 
an Indian practice. And so to be the person excluded, then to have to raise your hand multiple times, you have to start to raise your voice, then it starts to feel like a battle. So it's a really delicate, challenging experience for all who are involved. It sounds like it. And I'm grateful to those of you speaking out to that you're willing to raise your voice enough that more and more people can hear. And hopefully that we do create a shift. And I do want to talk about solutions and what we can do. Um, but before that, I have a couple other questions. One of them is, I'm also noticing this trend among the most sensitive and thoughtful of yoga teachers, where it's like these highly sensitive people, they feel the pain and the, the quandary of cultural appropriation so strongly. And then specifically, they get exposed to a certain worldview that I would say is maybe the extreme version of the activists talking about cultural appropriation. So one of the ideas out there is that white people shouldn't teach yoga at all. I have a decent number of conversations with teachers who are seriously struggling and questioning about whether or not it's okay for them to continue to teach yoga. Would you be willing to speak to that? I'm so willing. Yeah. You know, I'm have not been part of those conversations directly. But I could say that on all sides, right, using and practicing yoga and compassion, which mindfulness being, right, this later derivation um, from yoga practices, is this concept of compassion. And I think all people in this right now are feeling a lot of hurt and we're in a lot of pain. And so what we do with empathy, so you might know I'm a, I was a public school teacher and I helped to start a graduate school of education where I was teaching teachers and we teach empathy to kids in addition to academics. And this empathic concept is not separate from yoga and mindfulness. So when we look at the person who might be saying um, white people shouldn't teach yoga at all, if we can really look into their pain deeply, probably they're coming from a place of feeling so extraordinarily excluded so unheard and cast aside. And truly, I go through this all the time in my work where, for example, someone might want to invite me to teach something for a company and it's, well, we need it to be breathing and moving. If it has to engage. And it's hard, right? It, it, gets, it gets really painful over time. So perhaps that's a person who's feeling so much pain and so much historic ignoring of, of the culture and people that they're only way of that solution. And once you start to pressure someone down enough, right, and a people, it starts to pop off. It's hard to control. And perhaps, perhaps, I'm just, as one suggestion, that's one way of looking at that person's pain and feeling compassion. The person who's in the position of being a white person who's feeling like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be teaching now or maybe even feeling excluded themselves, looking deeply into your own pain and honoring that feeling, and perhaps finding um, in common humanity um, where we're all feeling the pain there, right, is now suddenly that person starting to feel excluded from the practice. And how can that person understand better what it's been like for the other side as they're in it? My personal viewpoint, of course, is that anyone who is embodying the practice of yoga would teach and lead by being the practice of yoga. And um, we understand that there's evolution in how yoga is being taught today, right? Historically, yoga was a person who was embodying the practice of yoga and disciples started to come and they were followed and they were, there's no money involved. You're relinquishing many of our worldly possessions. 
Now we have certificates, right? So there's this irony. We have certificates, we have standards, we have organizations that put a stamp on something. There's not something necessarily wrong with that. It allows us to practice anatomy safely and, and accessibility safely, right? But it is also something that's not historically the same. So with the person who's teaching yoga, it's still an opportunity, whether you're Indian or not, or white, to acknowledge that there's pain here. Feeling excluded is awful. What can we do to educate ourselves and how can we start to practice more compassion for those who've been historically excluded from the practice, usually people of color, in particular for yoga and mindfulness, Indian people, people of South Asian backgrounds who just want to know that we're known for this practice over time. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we need to do is have these conversations about cultural appropriation more so that people understand that there is a wide range of ways that people are going to engage with it, that we can engage in the conversation about cultural appropriation without going to the place of certain people shouldn't teach yoga. It's a complex, nuanced conversation. And by our willingness to engage with it. Um, I've recently been reading My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menachem. Are you familiar with it? Mm -mm. So it, he is a therapist and social worker who specializes in racialized trauma. And he has this concept of the difference between clean pain and dirty pain. He says clean pain is the pain of engaging with what is the right thing to do, even when it's hard. And dirty pain is what happens when you avoid that engagement when you, you harm yourself and you harm others by not being willing to do what's right. Right. I think it's a, a beautiful explanation. I, I have a teacher who similarly shares that pain of a disinfectant versus that same concept of a, a pain that feels dirty where we're creating harm. But disinfect, it doesn't, there's work involved as a collective humanity. And when we have this self-help concept, which again is more a Western interpretation of these yoga practices, remembering back to the origin that karma yoga was part of the origin. Karma, not about, oh, you know, even that word gets kind of demeaned of, oh, it's bad karma. And that's not what it means. Karma is in service, in seva of others, knowing that we all collectively exist. Um, and so when we can do that disinfecting, clean pain work, it is work and it does hurt. It's like putting that like a disinfectant onto your wound. It hurts, but it's in favor of healing, not just yourself, but those that are in need of it together. So I think that um, it's a very meaningful thing to bring up. Yeah. Yeah, that was beautifully said. And I know that you, our time is limited. And so I want to respect that. There's so much more to talk about, but I think this was a beautiful beginning to the conversation. I agree. Yeah. I would love to see this as a beginning and perhaps we can talk again. I'm happy that it means that right now I'm having conversations like this in multiple places. Um, you know, right now I'm teaching kids in a summer school with these concepts. So it's a, it's a busy, you know, more <laughs> structured time schedule, but I'd be happy to share more over time. And as this is an introduction, it is a chance to just let this wash over you. And maybe it brings up good feelings, not good feelings, but to with yoga, be with it. And that I'm um, happy to share more resources. If you go to renathepoet.com, there's more resources there for reading if you like. Um, but potentially we could have more conversation again. But I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Yeah, I would love that. Thank you so much. Okay, 
So I know that was a very brief introduction to a vast topic, and we definitely could have talked a lot longer if we'd had the time. Rena had a super busy summer. She had a very limited amount of time that she was able to devote to this particular episode, and I'm really grateful that she did. If you happen to be listening to this episode shortly after it's released in August of 2020, I hope you'll join me to learn more from Rena on this topic in a very special workshop that she's offering specifically for the Yoga Teacher Resource community on September 3rd, 2020. You can find out more about the workshop and register at teachingyoga.net slash Rena. The fact that you chose to listen to this podcast episode is a great sign. It's a sign that you're choosing to walk in this world in a way that causes less unnecessary harm and that you're actively interested in learning to do better. I want to reiterate that part of what makes cultural appropriation such an uncomfortable topic for many people is that there aren't any simple answers. We want to hear, do this, don't do that, then you're in the clear. But that's actually a form of bypassing the complexity and our potential to grow through exploring the topic. Learning about cultural appropriation involves being willing to sit in the discomfort of uncertainty. And I know that there are so many of us, myself included, who just want to do it right and be one of the good ones. But unfortunately, that's a false comfort. And what's really needed in this situation is to take the most skillful action available to us in the moment and be willing to learn from our mistakes because there will be mistakes. As with any anti-oppression work, we're going to mess up, but we can't let the fact that we're not going to do it right prevent us from taking action. I mean, it's really just like any skill you want to cultivate in the world. If you want to get better, you have to do it. You have to work on it and you will get better through experience. It's just like teaching. When we first start teaching, yeah, we mess up a lot and hopefully we don't beat ourselves up about it too much, not to the point where we quit teaching, but instead we look at where we can do better and we keep learning, especially when we make mistakes. Those are the biggest opportunities to learn. If you are willing to listen with openness and with humility, I believe you can be part of the solution. As always, I want to wrap up this episode with an invitation to self-care. As I'm recording this outro, I'm getting ready to leave town for a week and preparing to leave on top of my already full schedule and a few extra commitments that I underestimated, it's pushing me into a place of stress that I'm fortunate to say is rare in my life. It's really bringing home to me the imperative of self-care for being able to show up for others whether it's in my personal life or for the wider world. Honestly, I really do not like who I become when I'm under significant stress. I know that many of you are navigating massive stressors from COVID or perhaps even from other circumstances, and I want you to know that I really feel for you. Whether this is happening to you now or it will eventually happen at some point in life because that's part of being alive is that we get put under more stress and less stress based on circumstances and then we cultivate enough resiliency to handle that stress or not but it's unlikely to ever have a person who navigates their full life without a load of stress that exceeds their resiliency so for me the big lesson in this is monitor your nervous system 
Notice those slight imbalances so that you can correct them before you go off the deep end. And when I say go off the deep end, you know, I think there's different levels of that as well, of course. I have definitely been snapping at my family. I yelled at my teenager yesterday, which I never, I obviously I can't say never, but I very rarely do. And I'm sharing this just to show that even somebody who makes self-care a priority, which I really do, I'm not going to be perfect about it. And I don't want you to expect perfection from yourself, but you can go for progress. And I'm going for progress. I'm going for doing better and heading in the right direction. The best advice I can give is reach out for help before you think you really need it and let go of more than you think you should let go of. And if you can let go of something else that is not really essential, then you can make time for the things that fill you up Even when your brain is telling you it's not practical, it's selfish, whatever, you know what's selfish is not being resourced to help the people in your life and to make a positive impact on the world. Staying regulated is the kind thing to do. Okay, that's it for this week. Thank you so very much for listening all the way through and for listening to my traditional self-care rant at the end. Check back next week for another episode of knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice.